0: So today is going to be a topical study on the wrath of God and the love of Jesus. It's called, What Was in That Drink? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for loving us. And uh, I thank you for your word that gives very clear on, on how we should think and what, what has happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future. Lord, I pray that you would work deep things into our hearts today. Amen. Is he safe? Is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Anyone know what that's from? Narnia. Narnia, right. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And who are they talking about? Aslan, who is who? He is Jesus. You guys know what the, the Chronicles of Narnia are all about? It, it's, not like a, it's not an allegory. It's, a, it's an imaginary story of what Jesus would be like if there was another world alongside our world called Narnia. How would Jesus act in that world and in our world, and if they both collided, what would that be like? And in this world, he's a lion named Aslan, and the question that young, the young girl has is, is he safe? Is he safe? Well, I got a question for you guys. Is God nice? Oh, you think so, huh? Well, I guess that kind of depends on what the definition of nice means. Do you know the word nice has more definitions than any other word in English? There's been times when the word nice meant... um, uh, What was it? (laughs) Inappropriate. Mm -hmm. There's been times where it meant... Um, oh gosh, I forgot all the meanings. I read through them all, but I'm drawing a total blanket. I didn't write down what the what the words but did you know the word nice has also been banned from most writing classes because you don't know what it means, and usually you can't even figure it out by context. When we say nice, normally we mean pleasant or, you know, nice car. That's right. But th- th- there's been so many weird meanings, so that was kind of like a terrible trick question I just asked you guys. So, Let's try, another, let's try it another way. <laughs> nice, you say. <laughs> Does God always do what you think he should do? Mm. So is he agreeable or pleasant? Mm. Well, today, we're going to let the word of God test our hearts. Like a hammer that tests the quality of steel when you're banging on some steel. Sometimes that metal is strong and true, and sometimes it breaks and dents. And we're going to see what happens to us today when we take the Word of God and slam it up against our hearts. Maybe you didn't know what you were going to get into when you came to church today, but we're fixing to find out. Are you ready? Turn to Revelation 14. Good to go. The truth is that Jesus loves you unquestionably. He's merciful and gracious, but he's totally just, which means he's willing to punish and condemn people at the same time. How can these two things exist together? He loves everybody, but he's willing to punish them and condemn them to an eternity in hell. Are you happy that God punishes and judges the wicked? Do you doubt that it's done in the wrong way? Do you ever doubt? Are you surprised to the extent of their punishment? These are some things we're going to think about today. Let's take a look. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6. We'll start in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Don't forget about them. And another angel followed, this is angel number two, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship, the beast, and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Well, these three angels, at the end, they have a revelation for the people who are alive on the earth during that time. They have something to explain or to reveal. And the first thing, the first angel, he comes and he reveals the gospel, the the good news. He says, fear God and Worship him through the gospel. There's a way you can do it. It's the gospel with Jesus. You can fear God and and worship him. It's all tied up in, in Jesus. If you reject Jesus, you don't fear God. You don't believe the gospel. Then the second angel comes, and he talks about Babylon and how it's fallen. And what that means is that all the world has and all the world is, is coming to a horrible end, and it will not save you. Babylon represents the world, many different parts of the world, the economic, commercial systems of the world, the religious systems of the world. Every different system of the world is going to fail, every single one. It has fallen under the control of the beast or the enemy and all who are connected with this Babylon or who worship the beast, it says they're going to fail. They drink the drink of the evil one, the enemy. They partake in his, the spiritual fornication of Satan. It goes in their mouth, it goes down their throat and it becomes part of them. One thing I found interesting with studying this week is in verse 11, it says, those who worship the beast, and that's in the present indicative form, tense, That that which means it's something that is happening and continues to happen to, with the people. In other words, they are worshipers of the beast. Nothing changes in their heart. It's in the present active indicative. It's It's something that is part of them. They are worshipers of the beast. They don't. It doesn't, when they drink it in, it becomes part of them. This, I will rebel against God. Nothing is going to make, make me change. We, even a crazy like punishment? No, that's not going to make me change. Nothing will make me change because I hate authority. I hate anyone telling me what to do. It becomes part of their DNA. Worshipers of the beast. And that's what happens when they drink this cup That Satan offers them. Then the the third angel comes along. And he says the wrath of God is going to be poured into a cup. And the wicked will be forced to drink that cup. So there's a lot of drinking symbology. I don't know if that's a word. But drinking symbolism. Thank you. There's a lot of drinking symbolism going on here. God says if you embrace all that Satan is, the rebellion against God, it comes inside you and it becomes part of you. So the the next step, God says, what will happen is you will drink the cup of the wrath of God. You will drink that cup. And guess what? That wrath will go into your throat, into your stomach, and it will become a part of you it will it's not just going to be upon you it will be inside you it will be inside you the wrath of god will be poured into a cup and the wicked will be forced to drink it the wicked will be drink the wine it calls it of the wrath of god and it will be poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation The verse said he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and their smoke and their torment will ascend forever and they will have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. So God is going to judge the sin of the wicked and he describes it as this cup. It's of anger. It's not watered down, he says. It's full strength. It's not watered down. And it will look like torment and fire forever. So we say, and if you choose to live a life of sin, this is the punishment. There's no second chances. There's no purgatory. There's no such thing as that. God has warned everybody. This is what happens to those who worship Satan through a sinful, rebellious life. Done. Jesus is even the one who oversees this punishment. Isn't that crazy that the smoke rises up before the Lamb in the presence of the holy angels forever and ever? I, that's kind of shocking to me. It's kind of depressing. That's not really what you expect meek and mild Jesus to be a part of. Does this surprise you? The hammer is banging on our hearts. The wrath of God is being poured out on people is difficult to process. And if it's not for you, you haven't thought about it hard enough. This is hard. Even if those people are guilty, it's hard to imagine a punishment that literally cannot ever end. This is is forever and ever, he says. Their punishment goes on and on. It's easier to imagine hell as a dark place that we don't have to think about when we go to heaven. I don't think any of us in here are going to hell. I hope not, but I don't like to think about hell as being something that we observe from heaven, but that's what the scripture says here. I don't like to think about it as something that Jesus is a part of forever and ever and ever. It says, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest who worship the beast in his image and receive his mark on their head. This is the cup that they're forced to drink, never-ending torment, hell. It's brutal. And, And notice that that drink, it went inside them just as the rebellion went inside them, and so they don't change. Nobody is in hell saying, Oh, I want to honor God now. I want to live a life that honors God and pleases God. No, because the drink went inside them and became part of them. They become one with what they drank. And that's why the, 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 the torment does not cease because they drank it down and it becomes part of them. So no matter where they would be, it would be hell because God's wrath is within them. turn with me to luke chapter 22 luke chapter 22 now we need to consider something else as as we let the word of god penetrate our heart as the word of the hammer of the word is smacking us around this morning we need to think about something else jesus is so willing to pour out this cup on wicked people he, he's like, it, 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 it's something that he does willingly. It's almost like he's excited about it. I mean, not, not in a weird way where he's you know wants to hurt people, but he, he acknowledges, he knows this is the right thing to do. I'm going to pour, and my, I will, God will be glorified by me pouring this. What, what does Jesus know about this cup? What does Jesus know? about this cup. Luke chapter 22, verse 41. And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then... Check this out. An angel f- appeared to him from heaven. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Or sorry, and the angel strengthened him. And then he, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. Then he sweat; his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Well, what, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is going to be tortured and killed the next day. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is his favorite place. He would like to retreat with his disciples. There's a quiet place where he'd like to get alone, outside the hustle and bustle of the city, where he could pray and quietly be alone with his Father. And something is heavy on his heart. And I want to try to explain it to you. For eternity, forever and ever in the past, he has been one with the Father. One in heart one in mission, one in glory, one, connected. Even when he became a man, he was always connected still with his Father. He was always giving glory to his Father. But tomorrow, something is about to change. And Jesus knows how much God loves him. I mean, his father, God the Father, has literally ripped open heaven twice to yell to everybody how much he loves his son, his undying love for his son, and his approval of his son. Jesus knows the Father loves him. And Jesus knows also, number two, well, he has known for the past 4,000 years about how much God hates sin. I mean, Jesus was a big part of the flood, the plagues on Egypt, the rebellions in the desert and the judgments and people falling into the earth and snakes and and then the Babylonian exile. He's seen God's passionate hatred for sin. But he knows God loves him. But he knows God hates sin. But he knows God loves him. But he knows God hates sin. And these two truths are violently colliding in the crisp, cold, dark olive garden on this night, 2,000 years ago. Jesus is holding a cup. It's invisible, it's symbolic, but it's more real than any cup that's in your cupboard today. Jesus is about to consume the drink of God's wrath on sin, the same wrath that we read about in Revelation chapter 14, the same wrath that causes smoke and torment to ascend forever and ever and ever, Jesus is going to consume it. The full, undiluted hatred of evil. The same wrath that the Old Testament spoke of Many times. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point you to three of them real quick. I'll read them to you. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, and it is fully mixed, meaning undiluted. And he pours it out. Surely its dregs all the wicked of the earth shall drink down. Or Isaiah 51 talks about the same thing. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Jeremiah talked about the same thing, twenty-five, fifteen. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations of whom I send you to drink it. So this is God's cup of wrath. It is symbolic of God's anger, his indignation, it said. What does indignation mean? We don't use that word. Father, I have indignation towards you. You did not let me have seconds at dinner. We don't use that word anymore. So I had to look it up and find out what it meant. And it meant calculated determined anger. This isn't God just losing his temper or control, losing control. This is God saying, you are really evil and I am going to punish you to the exact extent of your evilness, your wickedness. God says, I am an infinitely good and holy God. This is how he helps us understand it. I'm an infinitely good and and holy God. We sang all those songs about God's holiness, didn't we? And when we sing that, when we talk about God's holiness, it gets a little scary. Because God's holiness destroys things that aren't holy. He said, Moses, you can't see me. You would die. Anyone who sees God's God's glory would die in a sinful state. Uh, so, So he says, I am an infinitely good and holy God, and so your sin infinitely offends me. Anytime you rebel against me, it's an infinite offense. So the consequences of that sin are infinitely severe. That's why hell lasts forever. Hell has to last forever. Why? Because God is infinitely good. And any sin deserves infinite punishment. Infinite. It's a holy, righteous wrath or indignation. That's what this cup is. And Jesus is at the crossroads where he is being asked to drink that wrath down. Let it become of part of him. Drink it into his mouth, down his throat, into his stomach and let God's wrath, his infinite wrath, become part of him. To let sin and wrath become one with his body. Even though he did absolutely nothing to deserve this, right? And then he's going to let his body die so that the wrath can be done away with as well. That's the whole plan. That's the scheme. That's the gospel. That's the the amazing part of this. When Jesus died on the cross, God stuffed all of his wrath for sin into the body of Jesus. He squished it in. Only Jesus was strong enough to bear that or could, could consume that much wrath. And God put it all in Jesus so that when Jesus' body died, the wrath would be gone too. And this is called propitiation. We have studied this word before. We've had some great time studying this word. I love the idea of propitiation. It means to satisfy the wrath. Of God. He became our propitiation. When all that wrath got poured into Jesus, and then Jesus' body died, the wrath, where did it go? It's spent, it's gone. So when He looks at you, believers in Jesus, what does He see? Not sin. He is not angry. He's not angry. In fact, as we've studied, it would be unrighteous for him to be angry at the same sin twice. Can he punish for the same sin two times? Is that right? No. And your punishment, he punished Jesus for you and your sin on the cross. So God will never, can never, won't ever punish you for your sin. That's awesome. It's wonderful. So David Guzak concludes, Jesus, as it were, became an enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink of that cup. Taking this figurative cup was the source of Jesus' greatest agony on the cross. That's what Jesus is going through on this night. That's what Jesus knows is coming. And so what happens, it says in verse 41, he knelt down and prayed. And then verse 42, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. So God, the Father, did not answer Jesus' prayer with yes, meaning, yeah, let's take the easy way. You just come back up into heaven. We'll live happily forever after you and me and the Holy Spirit, us three and the holy angels, and we'll get rid of all people. That's that option. But instead, God sent an answer In the form of an angel who strengthened Jesus to drink the cup for us. God sent Jesus supernatural help to do the will of God, the Father. Supernatural help. Maybe this angel showed up and he reminded Jesus of the the great love that God had for humans and he he just said, hey, remember, they're, they're goofballs, but we love them so much and they're made in our image and they could be so much if we just can figure out a way to get the Holy Spirit into them and Jesus, you can just remember how much you love them. Maybe that's what this angel did. Or maybe he was like the albino guy from the Princess Bride. That weird guy who, who's just bandaged up Wesley as he's in the torture chamber. And he bandages them all up and Wesley says, why why are you curing my wounds? And, and the, guy, the albino says, the prince and the count always insist on everyone being healthy before they are broken. You remember that? So I don't know which one of those this angel was like. <laughs> but what it represents for us is supernatural help from God, which is grace. God gave Jesus grace to suffer on the cross. He gave him strength to do the will of God. And then look at what happens next. Verse 44. And he, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. This is weird. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I want you to notice what's weird about it is that after the angel strengthens Jesus, he's in agony. And Jesus prayed more earnestly. I was not expecting this as I was reading and studying. I thought after God strengthened you, Okay, I can do it. (gasps) Calmness, peace would be the... I wasn't expecting there to be a more intense prayer for Jesus. I mean, isn't this the guy who wrote the book on prayer? Isn't this the guy who taught everyone in the world how to pray? I thought all his prayers would be the more intense prayers. Not now. Not once he's been strengthened to do the will of God, then he needs to have a a next level. But we find here that after the father sends an answer to his prayer, not a yes, but with strength, he takes his prayer to another level. And it's because he's devastated as a human as being a part of the race of Adam, as being one of us, he is devastated to be assigned this terrible suffering. He he receives his answer, no, you're going to suffer. Yet, he's obedient as the Son of God to the will of his Father with no reservations. Absolutely, I will. And there's this brutal battle happening in his being. He is not disagreeing with his father at all because he's able to see the same event from two perspectives, though. And we're allowed to see the ferocious results of this conflict in the drops of blood that escape from his pores. It just, it's giving us a glimpse of what is happening in his soul. The commentary, uh, Brown, James, uh, James, and brown it's on blue Litter bible it says uh, this to help us explain it it says there is no struggle between a reluctant and compliant will that's not what's going on here but between two views of one event the abstract and the relative view of it in the one one person has two views the first one this event this dying on the cross is revolting And in the other, it's welcome. By signifying how it felt, in the one view, he shows us his beautiful oneness with ourselves in nature and in feeling. In other words, if Jesus just was like, all right, let's do this. Let me die for you. We would be like, you're not human. But he is one with us. He is truly human. He senses the fear and the dread of what's going to come upon him. Which means... He has one with us. And in the other light, he reveals the absolute obedience, subjection to his father as the son of God, the only one who could do this. He's literally being torn in two on the inside. His skin struggles to hold the conflict in, and so some of the blood escapes. He's in agony. Doing the will of God is dangerous. He loves his father more than anything and would obey him in any command with the passion of a thousand sons. Yet Jesus hates sin, hates sin just as much. Jesus uh, sees how sin dishonors his wonderful father. Jesus sees how sin uh, it rebels against his for his Father's perfect rule. And it breaks his heart. And all that sin is about to be put on Jesus, about to be put in Jesus, and all that hatred of God towards sin will be directed toward Jesus on the cross. God will pour out his righteous, terrible, infinite fury and hatred of sin on his beloved Son, the only son that makes him happy we've read the only person that does what's right and he's the one jesus is the only one who even understands how much god hates sin jesus is the only one he's the only one who has first hand experience of true holiness and how nothing could ever be allowed to tarnish that beauty jesus knows the father's perfection and so he understands. Jesus knows what's coming, not just pain. He's literally going to be identified as the sinner. He becomes sin for us, just like in the back in the children of Israel, God told um, Moses to make a snake and put it up on a on a pole. Jesus, that snake a symbol of sin, and if the people looked at it and it being judged, they would be healed. It's the same thing. Jesus becomes our sin. He becomes the sinner like he's the only one who ever rebelled against God. He's going to suffer as the only one who ever sinned. The worst rebel, the enemy of God. God will withhold all his love and pour out his anger on Jesus. And Jesus says, at the end of this night, I will drink the cup. This is what the end of this battle in this prayer declares. The end of the agony in this peaceful garden is a determination to drink the cup for us. And several hours later, the next day, By 3 p.m., he yells out, It is finished. And during that time, he drank the cup to the bottom. That it is finished is the final cry of victory after Jesus has consumed an infinite amount of wrath to pay for an infinite amount of sins, infinitely offensive sins. He finally drinks it in and he's ready to die to do away with them. All because of love. Number one, love for his father. Jesus loved his father. He surrendered his life. He honored his father with his will. He drank the cup of his own father's wrath. Number two, because he loved you. Because he loved you. He felt the full penalty of each and every one of our sins. He had no guarantee that you would ever change or do anything to deserve his love. He just loved you with pure, undeserved, unearned passion. How do we respond to that? Well, a lot of us turn to him. So Jesus drank this cup for you. This wrath of God. Let that sink in. The just for the unjust. The right suffering for the wrong. The good is suffering for the bad. The holy suffering for the sinful. Jesus for you. Not Hitler. For you. I mean, if Hitler would have turned, I guess it would have been for him too, but for you that's right you're the bad one you are the sinful one you are the one that has offended god you are guilty do you know that have you admitted that if there's any part of your heart that can't see your own wickedness pray that god would open the eyes of your heart that you can see his own holiness and your own sinfulness because we are all wicked like Psalm 5, verse 4 says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. That's us. We can't dwell with him. But Jesus drank this cup for you. Jesus drank this cup for you. He let the sin, your sin, come into his body. Through some weird transfer, the Lord put all our sin in him. And he drank it. So our question is, what cup are you going to drink for him? What is required of you now? It's a little weird. In, uh, in John chapter 6, I'm going to read it to you. Verse 53, Jesus said, As the living father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So Jesus says, Here's what you gotta drink. My blood. Got a question for you. What is a vampire's favorite fruit? No. A nectarine. Oh. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry, thought I would lighten the mood just a little. Blood orange is a good answer, too, though. I thought about that one, too. But Is Jesus asking us to be vampires? How do you know? Ooh. Did you know there's a whole chapter in the Old Testament devoted to making sure the Jews weren't vampires? Yeah, I'm going to read to you Leviticus 17. Check this out. Check this out. Leviticus 17, verse 10. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, even from Transylvania, who eats... No, just kidding. That wasn't in there. But who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and cut him off from among the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. So don't be vampires. So drinking blood is forbidden. Why? Why? It says here, because the life of the person is in blood, or the life of the animal, or whatever. But Jesus requires us to drink his blood. Why? Because the life of Jesus is in his blood. But his blood is spiritual. He is not talking about drinking physical blood, of course, just like Jesus didn't drink a physical cup for the wrath of the Lord, right? It was spiritual. Our drinking his blood is not physical It is spiritual. How do we know? Because Jesus told us. John 6, verse 60. Right after he said, this is right after what we just read about Jesus said, Drink my blood, drink my blood, drink my blood. If you don't drink my blood, you're not part of me. Drink my blood. Then, verse 60 happens. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying, and who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. He's saying this is a spiritual conversation we're having. I'm not talking about blood, red blood cells and white blood cells and hemoglobin and all the other things that go into blood. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, drinking his actual blood would profit you nothing. (laughs) Including being gross. It would actually do nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life, Jesus said. The words I speak to you are spirit and life. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no man can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked away with him no more. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we also have come and believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His blood is his words. So Jesus, he gives this supernatural spiritual test. He's testing his disciples. And he asks he asked them, do you guys want to go away too? because what jesus who what jesus gives us is spiritual and the way to access this life is also spiritual it's called believing that's how we access that's how we take the cup in our hands and drink his blood believing is it jesus asked them a couple times do you want to go away do you want to go away? He's testing them to see if the Father has done the work yet of granting them the believing that we see Peter talk about. He's testing them. And if we look just a little uh, bit before in verse 35, on, on the previous page, John 6, 35, we'll see Jesus clearly explains to them how to drink the cup. He says, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Done. Come to Jesus and believe in him is how we drink the cup of his blood. John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to believe in what Jesus did on the cross. That God stuffed all the sin into his body and that Jesus died on the cross. And you have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But you can't believe those things unless the Father draws you. Okay, so what's going on in the world today? Why do so many people not believe that? Well... Maybe they need to be prayed for. Amen. Maybe we need to be asking the Father to cause them to believe, and then we need to test them and say, do you want to follow Jesus or not? Do you want to believe his words or not? Do you believe in what Jesus did for you or not? If they say no, get mad at them and say, well, I'll burn it in hell. No, what that means is that the father has yet to draw their heart and we need to pray. And what happens when you pray to your father? He answers you with strength. His power is unleashed from heaven. He answers you. He is committed to being your father and working in the lives of the people who do not yet believe. How do you get someone to believe in Jesus? Anyone Has anyone ever done that? You smack them around, that doesn't ever work. You know, I deal with this with my own kids. I'm like, I want you guys to believe in Jesus so much. Believe in Jesus, smack. That doesn't work. No. When they hear about who God is and what Jesus has done for them, their heart will be drawn by God as you pray. That's how it always works. He said in Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Listen, what are you listening to? His words, the words of Christ, and believing the words of Christ is how we drink, get his life into us. It's how we drink his blood. Believing the words. So do people need to hear your opinions about Jesus? No. Do they need to? Necessarily, even see you living like Jesus, not as much as they need to hear the words of Jesus. What does Jesus say to them? Let your mouth spew forth the words of Jesus. Well, I don't know any words of Jesus. Well, read some. There's a whole bunch of them. The word is our cup. This is our cup. This is, and Jesus' life is what we drink. And this is done by faith, when we feast on the Word of God, we drink it down by faith. And we believe when the, word, when the Lord quickens our heart to do so. He says, "Do you also want to go away?" But Simon Peter answered him, "Lord, to who shall we go? You have the words of eternal life." And Jesus is like, "Yes." You figured it out. You understand, and he says, "And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus goes on to, goes on to say, "Blessed are you, and my Father has drawn you." And that's how it works. It's an easy test to find out if someone believe uh, if someone is a Christian. Do you believe what Jesus said? Do you believe all that Jesus said? If you believe this, your heart has been drawn by God. So we need to just respond to the call, drink the cup, open the word, and believe it. Just like Revelation 14 said, when it said the first angel was flying in the midst, and it said, he proclaimed the everlasting gospel, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. The hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and the springs of the sea. That is how we respond when we drink the cup, when we get his life into us. Notice that Jesus, he rose from the dead. Because, why? Why? Why is that so important? Because the sin had to be put in a dead body. But the new body is different. It's it's not like the old body. That old body is dead. The new body is alive and glorified. And it's in such a way that he could ascend to heaven and then send his Holy Spirit to each of us to dwell inside us. And now we have this new life when we believe. So we have communion today where we can do what Revelation said, fear God and give him glory and worship him. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sing one more song. We're going to take communion. We're going to fear God and give Him glory. Because you and me and all of us in here, we believe, right? Not because we're smart. We are idiots. I mean, I could go on and on, but we're not that great. But the Father has done some crazy work in our hearts where we believe that our sin was also stuffed into Jesus. And when He died, that did away with our sin. Isn't that glorious, guys? Man, it's awesome to be clean. It is wonderful. Let's stand up and praise the Lord.